talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. We are talking about how difficult it is to find a contractor these days to get anything done. If you're trying to do home repairs or renovations or fix anything up or get a fence or whatever, finding contractors, boy, it's tough right now. So who better to turn to? I don't know if he's ever, I mean, surely he's been called Bob the Builder at one time or another. Bob Asaduri and Triple R Incorporated host of Just Ask Bob on Cable 14. That that song is perfect for you, Bob. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. How are you? I'm terrific. How are you doing? Excellent. And hello, Hamilton. So why, Bob, and maybe this is a really dumb question that everybody already knows the answer to, but why is it so unbelievably difficult right now to find a contractor? Well, the pandemic has created a real shortage of licensed real contractors. Now, I repeat that word real twice. You know, in my experience uh, over the last 19 years, Hamilton has actually always had a shortage of licensed contractors. If many don't know, our municipality actually vets, license, and does an examination on prospective contractors. And they're awarded a license card with a photo on the card, and it's called Master Building Repair. There's only ever really been 15% out of all the contractors in Hamilton licensed. The pandemic is now exposing this. Because, well, we'll get into that later, but for many, many, many reasons, there's a boom in rentals and a boom in building. So the good guys, the licensed contractors, are booking months ahead, some even half a year ahead. And this leaves the pool of the many, the pretend, the unlicensed. And, you know, that can create a real shortfall, a real problem. Up until now, Bob, I, I would have completely understood why the boom. I mean, look, for almost two years, we were stuck in our home. Yeah. Now you're at home, you start looking around your house, and if you see the same thing every day, you go, well, that's ugly, or I want to fix that, or I need a better room for this or for that. But we've started to move out of that, and yet the crush has not let up seemingly at all. But that has surprised me as well. That That is absolutely amazing. With people now traveling, restrictions being lifted i guess people are used to it now they're addicted so to speak of hmm. new paint colors new garage door new man cave a continuation of a backyard oasis even though you can travel people are enjoying their yards they're enjoying their property much much more the thing about this though and you know like we we talk about economics on this show from time to time. We're going to talk about it a little bit today with finances and government and everything else. Um, the most basic economic principles, supply and demand. Uh, if you don't have a lot of supply and you have a massive demand, it's uh, it leads to some, pr- some prices out there, Bob, are unbelievable right now. You want to get a good contractor, you, you'd better be able to either have a lot of dough or be willing to give up one of your internal organs onto the black market because it, it is expensive <laughs> these days. Well, if we tie it to real estate, I mean, it's exactly at the supply and demand. I mean, the, the pricing with the homes, are they really worth that much? We, we know they're not. We know they're inflated. And I would hate to say, but in many cases with home improvements, the contractors understand the fact. They understand the market. They are educated. They're smarter than, you know, what you, do, what you generally in the past expect. You know, with real estate and real estate agents, that's one thing, but with contractors, you wouldn't expect it, but many are following the real estate market and they're realizing there's a supply and demand issue. We're, we're licensed. We're indeed at the top of our uh, trade. Why not charge more because of the supply and demand? I think that, you know, it, it's a conjunction. It's, 
continuation of what's happening with the homes. Well, I tell you, a, a personal story. During the pandemic, my wife and I decided we wanted to do a bit of a renovation on a bathroom in our house, and we got a number of contractors in to give us quotes. And Bob, I'll tell you, both of us nearly had a stroke on the spot when the first two contractors came in. And I realized very quickly, because they have so much work, they came in and gave, both gave us quotes that were so outrageous that I realized they have other jobs. They don't really want to do my bathroom because it's a smaller job than they could get. So they're throwing out a crazy price right now. And if I'm willing to pay it, well, they'll do it. They'll happily do it for the money. But, you know, they've got other things on the agenda they could take right now. It's for a smaller job, you'd better be willing to pay or you're probably not going to find someone because they've got so many big jobs to do. It's unfortunate and it really reminds me of 2008. 2008, you know, the local big box stores, they'd see me in and out, in and out, in and out, you know, sort of different time period then. Construction was slow. And they would ask me, why are you so busy when a lot of the other contractors are just hanging around at the protests, you know, annoying the staff and drinking coffee? And, I, <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is I don't brush homeowners away with a high, high price. These contractors may live to regret that because there's a problem. Problem is people remember, homeowners remember. Now, I will honestly tell a homeowner, here's the price. What, what, what makes them turn away automatically is the timeline. I myself am booking now, you know, if it's a large job, medium to large, we're booking eight, nine months ahead or sometimes into next year. So that alone will make the people, you know, that'll it'll turn them to somebody else or they'll remember me as opposed to giving a highly inflated price because times change. Contractors cannot expect this wishful thinking expect this to last forever at some point when the bubble bursts the homeowner will remember the contractor that gave him an outrageous price simply for the reason of i'm too busy for you as opposed to the fellow like myself or like somebody else that will give a reasonable price even high however the timeline is too far ahead and the people won't wait or in some cases they will wait so you know comes back to bite you later on things do come full circle I've been at this 19 years now, and I've seen a lot. The trick, though, is that you know what a good price is or a fair price, and other people might know it. But for the average homeowner, I don't know that the average homeowner knows if you're trying to do a bathroom or a kitchen or a bedroom. I don't know if the average homeowner knows what a really fair price is. And if you get two or three contractors in who all give you high prices, you just assume, well, that's the price then. I mean, well, it's, it's difficult it if you don't know what you're doing. Apples. So if we turn this around now for the listeners, very, very important. Not only the contractor and the credentials, but also the building materials. Do not get a quote from a licensed contractor. Compare that to an unlicensed handyman. That doesn't mm -hmm. work. So level the playing field. Make sure they're all licensed. And then you, the homeowner, seek out the materials. Do you want an American Standard Champion toilet or a Cadet 3? Make them both quote on the same toilet. Same type of tile for the shower. Same type of inheated flooring. Don't make one quote inheated flooring and make the other quote non-inheated. So you have to supply the contractors yeah. with the material list. You know, discuss that with them. I'll let them offer their experiences. It has to be apples to apples to be a fair comparison. You know, call in. They used to say two or three. I'd say even four or five or six quotes. You have to work at it. You know, it is, it's, it's a process. It's most definitely a process. That is Bob Asaduri, and you can see him on Cable 14. Just ask Bob. Bob, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today.
Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. The Hamilton Black Film Festival is back for its second year, starting with virtual screenings tonight and in-person screenings at the Westdale Theater on the 27th and 28th. That would be Friday and Saturday. Uh, this is uh, this is a festival, as I say, back for the second year. The founder of this is Pies Uzio Sefi, who joins us now. Pies, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks. Yeah, what? Tell me about this festival. You're you're the founder. Where did the idea come from for this? The idea came in 2019. I just went to a festival, a Toronto International Film Festival. I, I went there as a delegate. And when I came back, I was storming a world to do next. So it was then the idea started popping up, you know, saying, just have a film festival, just, you know, do the foundation and work on it. So that's what I did. I know I can never have a festival like Toronto International Film Festival, but I know if I can create one and work on it, good things can happen. So that's what what I did, and uh, every since then everything started coming up. We just building it up, and the community is so receptive. You know, I can you know I can't thank them enough. So thank mm. you so much. That's how it started. Yeah. What do you see as the benefit this brings? Is, is this well? I'll leave it there first. What, what what do you see as the benefit of this? The benefit is to bridge a lot of gaps. You know, we have a lot of bipolar community. You know, people in bipolar communities here. You know, people of color, you know, we, the, the only thing that was missing is how we all can come together. You know, like, uh, I'm trying to use this as a kind of forum to bring people together. Like, uh, it's not only like uh, black people film or people of color film, but producers out of the uh, people of color, they produce film and they cast people of color. So that can bring everyone up. My idea is that when we do that, as this festival progresses, so there will be a time when we're going to be having like industry night, and you find that the producers are not just people of color. They are white too, so because they cast people of color in their films, so their films are accepted, and with that we can integrate, you know. We can become friends, and with that we celebrate together. So that can happen if we follow it. So that was the reason I said, somewhere along the line, there's going to be a connection that everyone can be happy together. That is the idea. And there's something very interesting. It's called the Hamilton Black Film Festival. However, if I read your website, there's a line that says, this showcases cultural and traditional films of African, Caribbean, Native, Asian, Middle Eastern filmmakers, and other films of ethnic inclusion. So it's called the Hamilton Black Film Festival, but it's not just black films. It's, it's all different nationalities and different people from different backgrounds. That's correct. That's correct. So it's, yeah, it's like you said. It's for all, everyone, uh, everybody in the world's background. Everyone uh, can submit their thing to our festival. It doesn't matter whether you're black or you know. As long as you produce a film, because what we want, we want to see people of color in films, and we want to see black people in films. So that's that has been our complaint. But when we find a person like a, a white producer producing a film and casting people of color. So those that kind of is, that film is coming to our festival because that's what we want to happen. So is, is in your idea when you came up with this is the idea more about spreading and exposing black stories or is it more about giving exposure to black artists who may be involved in the filmmaking process? Yeah, you know, like 
the big industries, not every producer submits films to the big industries. Some of the films are rejected. It's not that they are not good, these films are good, but it's just like uh, a lot of people have been displaced. So this festival is just coming up to rescue a lot of film producers, you know, who otherwise their work would not be showing somewhere or others. It's not that because their work is bad, it's just they don't have the recognitions, all right? Mm. So the film festival is here to support people, producers like that. And we find out that when we start looking at the film they send, these people are very, they are famous, they are very talented, they are so creative. So that is the idea. So just to be there so that to, it, it's like we are happy the big industry, the big film production companies that, uh, you know, that people are not left behind. So that's what we are doing here. And this is not then just big Hollywood blockbusters that happen to have black roles in it. This is, th these are a lot of indie films or a lot of smaller films that maybe people would not have already seen. Yeah, yeah, yes, indie films. There are some films that have been to a lot of festivals that won awards. We have films from uh, as far as to Cameroon, film from uh, Iran, film from uh, Brazil. You know, it's a speak with about, about social justice. When you find it's one thing that is very interesting, when you watch these films, you find that we are all in the same society. It's not quite mm. much different. It says some are a little bit, but you still find the social problems everywhere. So, so when you find harmony, you get it. When you find social problem, you can relate to that. So that's what the film is all about. And this kind of film, they don't so much go to the big film festivals, all right? So we want the world to be heard. So we ask because the world is coming closer together. So we need films like this that can bridge those gaps so that when you see a film producer, you have a story to tell, try to watch the film and, and, and try to understand where the producer is coming from about the story. Does it take some time for some people to understand or to get the films? And the reason I say that is different cultures, they all have their own film industry, but we have different sensibilities. We have different tastes. We have different, you know, some people, when they watch, for example, a Bollywood film, it doesn't look like an American film. And you go, oh, I'm not used to that. I'm not really sure what I'm getting out of this. I'm sure the same thing would be for a film, as you say, from Cameroon or from Iran. Does it take yeah. some work to really get what they're trying to get after because of the different artistic visions? Okay, let me say in this another way. You see, in this city, we have a lot of BIPOC restaurants, whether yes. it's Asian, yes. sushi, uh, Caribbean, Africa, everybody goes in there, you eat, you pay because it's good, you come back, you come back next time. It's the same thing we are doing. We are BIPOC filmmakers. Huh? Every year we announce this film, great films, we put them together. It's like calling you to come and sample our food. All right? You buy the ticket, you wash it. It's not different. It's just another angle of looking at it. So that's what we do annually. We have great films that otherwise shouldn't be here. You can see it. Now we, 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 we thought how to bring them here for you to watch. So that's what we are doing. So it's not different. When you watch our film, it's like going to the restaurant and you finish eating and you pay as well. It's yep. not different. So it's like that's trying, trying it's... a different food. Yeah, trying a different <laughs> yeah, food and you like may like it. It's like trying a different food, yeah. Yep, there you go. And you know what? You may like it, you may not like it, but you know because you've experienced it now and for next time. So it's, it's, it's an experience. Right. That's right, that's right. Uh, Pais Usi uh, Osefi, uh, sorry for that. Um, listen, really appreciate this. The Hamilton Black Film Festival starting uh, streaming today, uh, Friday and Saturday. 
you can yeah. uh, see it. So, Pais, thank you so much for the time today. I really thank appreciate you. it. Can I just say one second? Of you course, yeah. Buy our virtual ticket at uh, HBFF hbff2022.eventive.org when you click on that it take you right there or go to our website www.hbff.ca click on 2022 festival it take you right to buy your tickets thank you there and is, you have the schedule there as well thanks for having great, me no no there is a great uh, great website once again the the email or the the website hb hamilton black film festival hbff.ca and all the information is on there. Uh, Pies, thank you for this. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I don't know how often you sit at your dining room table and as you're eating with your family, discuss the Bank of Canada and its connection to our federal government. Uh, unless you are into the economic world, probably very, very seldom. But it has been a topic that has been coming up in recent days and recent weeks for a number of reasons. One of them is because it's become injected into the federal conservative leadership race. It's something that is now being talked about broadly as, are, is it the cause of our inflation and other problems? And the, one of the big questions here is, should the Bank of Canada and the federal government have any kind of connected relationship or should they be entirely independent of each other with one not having any sway over the other it's a complicated issue i want to bring in chris reagan he is associate professor founding director of the max bell school of public policy at mcgill university he's a macroeconomic macroeconomist occasional newspaper columnist textbook author chair of canada's eco-fiscal commission uh a long long resume uh, chris thank you for so much for doing this today i really appreciate your time Thank you for having me. Can I just start off by saying I actually do sit at my dinner table and talk with my family about <laughs> See, the Bank of Canada. So I See, married an economist, and both of my kids studied economics. So, so our dinner time conversations are very fun. You would be the one. Yes, I had no doubt that I, I thought there would be somebody out there. Now we know who it is. That's me. Um, look, I think a lot of people, honestly, and I don't want to put anyone down or patronize or anything, but I think a lot of people don't really know what the essential role of the Bank of Canada is. Can you explain it quickly? I think you're right that most people don't know. And, and most people don't, uh, in, during normal times, they don't need to know because the Bank of Canada is just doing its job behind the scenes. The Bank of Canada has a few jobs. I mean, one is to, is to make sure that financial markets are working in an orderly way. Uh, but the one that we're really talking about here is trying to control inflation. And, you know, for the past 30 years, except for the last six months or so, for the past 30 years in Canada, inflation has been uh, very low. It's been very stable. It's been very predictable. It's averaged almost exactly 2%. Uh, and that's a very different experience than what we had in the previous 20 years. The 1970s and 80s were high and volatile inflation. And, you know, the Bank of Canada is largely uh, credited with that low and stable inflation environment. It's been so low for the past 30 years that we have basically ignored it, which means most people haven't been talking about it around the dinner table. And that's actually uh, a feature, not a bug, right? That's the goal, to get inflation low enough that we can basically ignore it. Uh, and, and the Bank of Canada is, is the one that really is able to uh, not on a day-to-day -day basis or even a month-to-month -month basis, but over a longer haul, the Bank of Canada is is really the the policy institution that is most closely connected to our longer-run inflation. 
is it now we, we can get into whether it should be or shouldn't be in a second but is it subject to political forces so uh yes and no so i think it's very important that that in a democracy like canada that we as people and with our elected political parties elected leaders that we um that we decide what we want um our bank of canada to be doing or trying to be doing and so that's why every five years the bank of canada and the government of canada enter into an agreement that says this is what the bank's primary objective is and the latest agreement was signed in november i think to apply for twenty twenty two for the next five years and that agreement states fairly clearly that the primary objective is to control inflation okay yeah and to target inflation and to keep it you know close to two percent um, so that is actually very much a uh, the government is involved, and I believe the government ought to be involved because it's I think it's very important that that the people through their representatives in Parliament are involved in deciding what this economic institution is doing. So that's the yes part, but the no part is politics then comes out of it and leaves the building, so to speak, when when we let the bank achieve that objective and to do whatever it needs to do to achieve that objective. And so this, in the article that you probably read of mine in the line uh, last week or so, I talk about, um, you know, how uh, the experience through history in the last, you know, 50 years across many countries is that when politics gets too closely involved in monetary policy, we end up with higher inflation. Uh, And the operational independence, it's not complete independence, but it's operational independence of the central bank is what allows the central bank to kind of take politics out of the picture, uh, allows the central bank to focus on what it's doing without worrying about day-to-day, week-to-week, and month-to-month political pressures. So operationally, I think it's very important that the central bank actually be apolitical. But one of the challenges, and we're short on time, and I wish we had a lot longer. I wish we could sit around the dining room table and do this. But um, one of the challenges here seems to be that there are some who believe the Bank of Canada and the governor of the Bank of Canada has messed up this time by flooding the economy with way too much cash or allowing that to happen or not doing anything about it. And so if we believe, and I say we, the government, if the government in power believes that the governor of the Bank of Canada has made a mess, should they not be able to change that person or should they say, no, I'm sorry, we are a step away from this. Therefore, we have to sort of sit back and just let him or her do what they do until their time is up. Well, it's important to keep in mind that the, that the, the Bank of Canada and the governor of the Bank of Canada especially is accountable to the government and is accountable to people and parliament. Uh, and so every, on a regular basis, the governor appears before the House of Commons Finance Committee and they, you know, they grill him on what's been going on and why you did what you did. And I, I think that is an accountability mechanism that's very important. Um, but I think there's another issue here, which is when people say, you know, um, they're critical of the Bank of Canada because they look outside and they see inflation. I think actually what they're what they're guilty of, if you like, is is poor analysis. Okay, so I look. I think inflation is a problem. I I think inflation is something that we should worry about. But we have just basically um, made it through two years of a phenomenally 
unusual economic period. And there's causes of inflation out there that have nothing to do with monetary policy, and frankly, that the Bank of Canada couldn't do anything about. The supply chain disruptions we've been seeing in the past 15 months or so, the war in Ukraine, uh, these are things that are driving up prices that have nothing to do with um, with the Bank of Canada, and frankly, the Bank of Canada couldn't do anything about them. Mm. Now, those aren't the only things that are driving inflation, but those are some of the big things that are driving inflation. So I think to be very critical of the Bank of Canada because of that inflation experience is to actually misunderstand the inflation process. And I think that is, so when, when you start talking about being critical of the bank, I think we've got to get our analysis right. I say, I wish we had a lot more time because it's a fascinating topic that, as I say, we just don't talk about all that much, but uh, glad we could today. Chris Reagan, I really appreciate the time. We all get together and have more dinners and talk more about policy. See? Exactly. There you go. Thanks thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We're going to talk about pumping up the jam because uh, the CEBL, not just back with basketball, but bringing in celebrities now to play. And I mean, I don't even know, maybe the, maybe if they ask him nicely enough, the commissioner and the CEO will throw on some shorts and join a team and see if he can uh, fire up some three-pointers. That would be Mike Morreale. I know he could play football. I don't know about his basketball. How's his basketball game? Scott, average at best. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would think you know you could be a uh, as a football player there could be some power forward in there no going it's like, it can't I, I be am, any worse than a, going across the middle. I am definitely a decent player. I'm a rebounder, no touch, and uh, but against the the competition that we have in our league, I don't stand a chance. Tonight is the kickoff. Well, tip off, I guess is uh, boy. Now I got talking football and com- mixing my metaphors here. It's the tip off to the fourth year of the Canadian Elite Basketball League, the Hamilton Honey Badgers. Get things rolling today. They host the Montreal Alliance down at First Ontario Centre, 7 o'clock. And Mike, you and I have talked about this before, and it seems like every year perhaps it's the same question that we start this with, but so many leagues that have started up over the years, and you know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, so many startup leagues have come in with great expectations and great plans and all these you know, thoughts that we're going to be a raging success and within months or a year or two they are just a memory you guys are still here how why well i mean there's there's a variety of reasons i'll I'll give you a handful that that for me are really important uh one is we know exactly who we are we always have so we knew we weren't going to go head to head with the nba but we knew we could be the best basketball in this country outside the nba and we knew that we could attract high uh, level talent because of when we play, uh, which is the spring and summer, and that we could be competitive from a compensation point of view based on other comparable leagues. And we knew Canada was a destination, not just for Canadians, but North Americans and internationals and all that stuff. And it, that was those are some of the key factors. And then, you know, how we're governed as a single entity league now morphing into, you know, bringing on other investors is we just, the decision making's a lot easier and the creativity at least from my perspective i'm allowed to be creative and allowed to take risks and chances and so far those have paid off and again i i know that if i said to you did you have any doubts that this would work you would say no because that's you know you're an optimistic guy and you wouldn't have done this probably if you thought i'm getting into this to fail i don't think you would have done that at the same time 
there have to be some moments along the way when you were concerned or when you said, you know, let's try this, but I don't know if it's going to work or not. There have to have been those moments. Well, you, you always have some sort of level of doubt. I, I would say I didn't expect our rise to be as quick um, as, and as influential. Um, I knew we would get there, but, you know, now looking back at what's transpired over the last week even, um, I mean, I think I sit back and say, wow, it, you know, how you never could have paid for that amount of uh, awareness or interest or visibility that we just received, you know, within the last four or five days. So, um, you know, there's always a, a moment where you're like, okay, is this going to work or not? You, you have to take risks. I mean, that's, that's part of doing what we do. Um, I'm just, I'm not afraid of too many risks. And maybe, maybe my approach to risk taking is a little bit different than others. All right. You're saying that you haven't, you couldn't have expected the attention you've got in the last four or five days. The, the, the big story for those who didn't hear it, and I don't know where they were, uh, Jay Cole, who is a musician, a, a rap star, he has signed not as a performer, he is signed as a player with the Scarborough Shooting Stars. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing is going to get some attention. It is, and it got considerably more than I anticipated. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm 50, but I'm not out of the, you know, I, I'm still aware of what's going on in the world. And when this came to my attention about a month and a half ago, the the, the thought or the chance that um, he could come, it, I was excited. I was like, this is great, because I understood and knew his passion about playing the game of basketball, and I knew that he was committed, and I knew that this, if he's going to take this type of risk or gamble, that this guy is, is all in. So, in that respect, I was like, well, bring it on. Hey, like any other player, if they come with passion, skills, uh, commitment, then let's give them a shot and see what they can do. Uh, the only difference is this guy is a Grammy-winning you know, megastar, and I didn't quite grasp the breadth in which he was revered all over the world, let alone in North America. So, it, it, I mean, it's a good news well, I'm not going to say good news, bad news. It's a good news, question news side of things. The good news, obviously, is all the attention you're getting. The questionable news, I suppose, if you want to call it that, is if he comes in, first of all, his coach has to play him almost all game because that's what people are coming to see. I mean, he's going to be exhausted because he's playing every minute of every game. And two, he better be able to play. Like, do we know that he can play the game? We, we know that he has the skills, and I've seen him practice, and, you know, the game is much different than practice. It could either expose you or it could, you know, you rise to the occasion, no matter what sport it is. Um, he's going to play the amount that he needs to play for that team to win. That may be five minutes. That may be 40 minutes. That's really up to the coach. He, he is no, under no uh, understanding that he is coming to be a starter or to take every minute of the game. He's, he's here to try to continue um, a career and to build a career. So, um, the fans' expectation may be much different than his or what the team is is here for because the team wants to win the championship. That's what they want to do. And if you, you know, he gets a lot of attention, Jay. But if you look across that roster that Scarborough has, I mean, there are some legit big time basketball players, including you know Toronto draft pick Jalen Harris. So it's it's not it's not just for fun. I mean, this is all about winning basketball games. That at the end of the day, you know, no matter who the player is, four, five, six, ten years from now. They won't be around, and you got to have a winning program. Hmm. So, how many other celebrities have you sent out invitations to? That hey, Biebs, come on, play. Be Drake, let's put you on a team. Let's see. What, I mean, how, you must have reached out to all the guys who play ball and say, "Come on, let's join a team." I didn't reach out to any, <laughs> and J. Cole reached out to us. So that was the interesting factor in all this. We we did not hunt him down. Uh, obviously, him and Drake are, are good friends. 
and uh, there was a discussion about uh, uh, you know Nico being part of that, and, and Obio Nico is is part of uh, Drake's inner circle, and he's one of the owners of Scarborough, and that led to a further discussion of okay, there's a spot if you want to come and earn it, and uh, let's do it. Let's talk about it. And that's how it, it came, and that's how it started. So certainly I didn't reach out because I wouldn't know where to begin. Um, you know, this all kind of came together naturally and organically, and I think, to me, that was the most important part. Your your iPhone phone list is, you know, more guys like Danny McManus, who's probably a step <laughs> or two too slow right now, and, you know, when he really jumps, you can get a thick slice of bread between his feet and the floor, maybe. Before he eats it. <laughs> no, we, we only have a minute or so here, but you're, you're, <laughs> sorry, I'll make sure that he doesn't get a copy of this tape. Yeah. Um, yearly has not only got him coming in, it's not only into his fourth year, you're expanding. This is like everything looks like it is moving in exactly the direction that you would hope that it would be moving in right now. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think we are actually in some cases a bit ahead of schedule, um, which, which is nice because we've, we've now, you know, changed some of our goals and, and looking or, you know, more easily into the future and having more conversations and more discussions, whether it's corporate partners, broadcast, new investors, et cetera. So all that stuff, um, you know, this didn't hurt it. Those were all under underway anyways. The recent announcement grabbed more attention, more headlines. That means more eyeballs on Canadian basketball. And at the end of the day, that's all I care about. It is uh, it is the start of year four. It's amazing, but uh, as I say, congratulations that uh, so many leagues have not succeeded. You have, and uh, that's a great story. And it's the Hamilton Honey Badgers kicking off tonight against the Montreal Alliance. First Ontario Centre, 7 o'clock. Uh, are you going to be down there? I will be down there, absolutely. There you go. So stop in, say hi to Mike. He's uh, he's the guy who, who looks like you know Charles Barkley, sort of, with the rebounding, only not quite as large. Um, <laughs> you got it. You know. In any way. Uh, Mike, always appreciate it. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. I want to read you something. This is the start of a column or a piece that was in the National Post the other day. The federal government paid out over $171 million in bonuses to executives and public servants for 2019-20, despite departments achieving less than half of their performance objectives overall that same year. The latest numbers from the Treasury Board Secretariat are contained in documents tabled in Parliament recently following a question from the Conservatives. Quote, it's pay for failure, says Conservative MP Kelly McCauley. Hmm. This does not sound like it's holding bureaucrats, workers, this is my words again, not anymore with the paper, to a very high standard that we're going to spend $171 million in tax dollars, your money for bonuses, for achievements that weren't reached. This, this, this doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem like our government is applying the same levels of expected excellence that the private sector would, which maybe shouldn't be a surprise because it's not their money. It's our money. And so there's no, why not do it? You know, they tried hard. That seems to be, it's, it's like a participation ribbon, it sounds like. They tried hard. I want to bring in Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thanks for the time today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You know, uh, look, uh, when I hear stuff like this, I'm not against public service, public servants being well paid if they are doing jobs that would be comparable in the private sector and would to get good people we need them I'm not a I don't think that public sector workers should be working for scraps or being paid poor wages I don't believe that at all 
But when I hear this, I, I can't help but think this would not happen, I don't think, in the private sector. So why is it happening in the public sector? Yeah, come on. This is absolutely absurd. I mean, it really makes it sound like the bureaucrats are calling all the shots here in Ottawa. Um, but let's even just set aside the fact that this is $171 million when the government is a trillion dollars in debt. Let's set aside the cost for a second. There's three. There's still three really big issues with all this. Number one, bonuses being paid out when departments met less than half of their objectives. Like, are you serious? I can tell you right now, if I meet less than half of my objectives, I'm being shown the door. I'm not being shown a big bonus check. Um, number two, these bonuses were actually paid out during the pandemic. They were paid out during the pandemic. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, well, who has to pay for all of this? Of course, it's taxpayers. So on the one hand, you have a bunch of these bonuses, which are essentially it was mostly executives within government getting the bonuses. Um, and all of that tab has to be paid back by the taxpayers who may have taken a cut in the private sector, who may have lost their job, maybe even lost their business. So fundamentally unfair. And number three, we can get into this in a little bit more detail, but this is a symptom of a bigger issue where we see we seem to see our politicians and bureaucrats within the cushy golden government gates being shielded from the financial reality that's facing Canadians in the private sector. Let me go to number two and three that you just offered there for a second, because look, I, I can understand, I, I am, I, I can get that somebody might say, hey, this was in the pandemic and the, the government bureaucrats, the executives who are getting these bonuses, you know, it's not fair to hold them to the same standards they would have had when it wasn't COVID because things were really difficult and how could they possibly hit their bonuses if this was going on? That's fair. But as you just pointed out, we're saying, okay, we've got to be kind to you and generous with you, while at the same time, those in the private sector who end up paying this were yeah. the ones who were losing jobs and losing work time and losing businesses. It, so you're saying we have to be really kind to this one group at the cost of another group that's facing all kinds of problems and isn't being treated kindly. It just, the, the sympathy vote to me in this moment, I get it, but it doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, it's one thing to say that government bureaucrats should be paid a fair wage, but it's a completely other thing to say that they should be getting a bonus on top of their wage or salary when everyone in the private sector has been taking it on the chin for about two years, right? That's not fair to, to go to the person who owns a restaurant down the street or the person who owns the gym down the street who struggled to keep their lights on for two years and ask them to pay higher taxes because these bureaucrats need a bonus. Um, I mean, come on. I mean, it's really unfortunate, but it, it does seem like a slap in the face that our politicians, our bureaucrats seem to be financially divorced from reality facing other Canadians. And I said that that's, this is a symptom of a bigger issue. Sorry, that's the, No, no, that's the, that's, that's the problem we have. And I've always had this issue is that when it's not your money... Mm -hmm. You don't have skin in the game and it doesn't seem all that difficult to say, well, but, well, but, but it, if you, if, if we said to our politicians and even the, the executives, we say, you know what, um, if you want to give those bonuses, uh, that's going to come out of a percentage of a per certain percentage is going to come out of your pay. You want to know something? I'm willing to bet you they suddenly go, well, wait a second. I'm not so sure now that I want to do that because now you've got skin in the game. If there's no skin in the game, there's no reason not to give bonuses. And, and look, everybody would love to give their employees bonuses, right? Small businesses, they would love to give their employees bonuses. 
But let's talk frank for a second here. What is uh, many small business owners actually have to do over the last two years? Pay cuts, pink slips. That's the reality that faced Canada over the last two years during the pandemic, during the government lockdowns. Okay, so of course everybody would love to give their employees pay raises and bonuses, but we have to just talk about financial reality here. And this completely lacks all types of common sense, and, and quite frankly, um, it lacks respect for taxpayers' hard-earned money. And, you know, I said this is a symptom of a bigger issue because this is going on throughout the bureaucracy. It's not just these bonuses. We saw the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, by the way, who, which is a federal crown corporation, and according to its own website, has one objective, and that's housing affordability for all. Okay, well, during 2020 and 2021, we've seen housing prices skyrocket. We've seen a housing affordability crisis in Canada. And during that time, during the pandemic, they handed out $48 million in bonuses to their employees. Absolutely mind-boggling, okay? We saw 300,000 federal government bureaucrats take at least one pay raise during the pandemic. Not a single federal government employee took a pay cut. So not only are we talking about these bonuses, but that's on top of more than 300,000 pay raises during the pandemic. And it doesn't stop there. All of our members of Parliament pocketed not one, not two, but three pay raises during the pandemic. So it's ridiculous. And as a taxpayer, I think many people are probably listening to this and, and feeling like they just got slapped in the face, quite frankly. Well, again, I, look, uh, it's it's the issue of private sector versus public sector. And there was a time when you went into the public service. You were a public servant. And when you look now at where wages are for comparable jobs and where pensions are for comparable jobs and where benefits are for comparable jobs, to me, it's an oxymoron to call someone a public servant. It's a private mm-hmm. servant now. It really is because we're, we're not way. showing that there is, an, uh, to me, when you look at this and other things and what you just talked about with the raises, we're not seeing that there is an understanding of a real world out there. And you can't tell yeah. me, the other thing is, Franco, you can't tell me that every single, I, I said off the top that I think that great government employees, we should lure great people. But you can't tell me that all of the hundreds of thousands of people are all the absolute best and brightest from the private sector that we've lured in with greater with greater pay. You can't. Well, I, 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 I sympathize exactly with what you're saying. And, and look, this is more than just symbolism. I, I want to I address that right now. It's more than just symbolism, because the problem is when you have uh, government employees, when you have politicians that become financially divorced from the people that they're supposed to represent, well, you get very tone-deaf policies, right? That's when you get carbon taxes going up three times during the pandemic. That's when you get deficit spending that leads to the printing press. That's when you get booze taxes going up. That's when you get payroll taxes going up, because it doesn't impact the people who are shielded from reality because they're in government. And they're more likely to put in these types of very damaging policies because they're not really feeling the full pain of their tax hikes, of their deficit no, spending. No. Um, right? And so it's more than just symbolism. It really is bad when you have government employees and when you have politicians becoming financially divorced from the people. Franco Terrazano, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks as always for the time. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Earlier in the show, we were talking about the Bank of Canada. It's sort of a mystery board for a lot of people. But 
the stuff they do has an impact on us. And there is new polling from Angus Reid showing a large percentage of Canadians want the Bank of Canada, whether they understand what it does or not, doesn't matter. They want the Bank of Canada to take a wait and see approach to dealing with inflation rather than raising rates again. I want to bring in Dave Krasinski, Research Director with the Angus Reid Institute. Thank you for this today, Dave. Really appreciate it. No problem. Nice to join you. Uh, not the regular Scott, but another Scott. So happy we to try to keep the same name just to make it easy for the guests. You know, they can't forget yeah. this way. Much appreciated. Um, I don't think it's, it, it wouldn't be too much of a surprise, would it, that a lot of people now, as they see interest rates starting to nudge up, that people get a little nervous and say, well, yeah, you know what, I know things are going on in the economy, but I'm a little scared of interest rates getting too high too quickly. That, that's, that's a reasonable guess that they might have said that, right? Yeah, and I think that you would get that a lot from, you know, people who are worried about their the, their investments, uh, people who are homeowners who might be looking at their mortgage and saying, what is this going to mean for uh, my monthly payments? Um, and there's this real balancing act. And we tried to, you know, understanding that people aren't necessarily locked into what the Bank of Canada is, what it does, but we tried to explain just briefly in the survey, the the concept of, okay, interest rates, you've got to raise them to control and reduce inflation because, you know, highest, higher interest rates will encourage saving and discourage borrowing. Um, and businesses might respond by lowering their prices to encourage demand, uh, and that would bring down inflation. You know, the, the risk of it, uh, the negative consequences, you know, on stock markets, on, on investments and home values and the potential for a deflationary spiral, which is always, you know, that's a problem in itself. So you want to be really careful with this. And we ask Canadians just looking at what's been done so far, what would you like to see based on, you know, what you've read and, and seen in your understanding of it? And uh, the largest group, 44 percent, say that they would they would uh keep interest rates where they are now. They support the current uh, strategy, having raised them um, a couple of times already, but they wouldn't go further yet. They want to wait and see. Whereas you know, about a quarter of people say that they would actually uh, go a little bit further. 27% say they would raise interest rates again if they were in charge of the Bank of Canada. So they're a portion of Canadians who are uh, feeling a little more aggressive with that. Why do you think that is? I mean, is it is it where they are in their saving and financial life, or is it, or is, do you think it's something else that's completely different that would explain why that more than a quarter are saying, "Sure, bring it on, go higher, I don't care." Yeah, what's interesting is that um, you know men are much more aggressive on this. If you don't even bother to look at um, income status, if you just look at the gender split. Um, Men are, are look at that and they say, okay, yeah, let's be aggressive, raise interest rates. If that'll bring down prices, let's go for it. Whereas um, women across all of the comparable age groups are considerably less likely. If you look at, for example, 18 to 34-year-olds, uh, 42% of men say raise interest rates again, just 25% of women. Um, in the older age brackets, it's 36% versus 13%. So some of it is just a mindset of being a little more comfortable with a, that aggressive policy. Um, and a little bit of it, I think, too, uh, comes from people who are, are more impacted by the, um, the current you know, high prices. Are, they're really feeling this, um, and they're, they're, tr they're looking for something that can help them. You know, they might not understand the mechanism, but if, if you're seeing prices, you know, skyrocketing in the, in the grocery store or, or gas prices, 
you might just be less worried about uh, rising interest rates as as a concept and more just you know if if it is a strategy to bring down prices let's go ahead and do that um so there's a little bit of a willingness i think for people who are just having a a tough time right now and you you know interesting words you just used there the the idea of it is a concept i i i question how many people really think through myself included really think through the economic machinations but they hear interest rates going up and just the the impression you have the concept you have is well that's going to mean it's going to cost more for everything yeah, and I think that's why when you're, you know, when you're trying to do a, a survey like this, you want to, you know, it's it's not the most fun thing for people to to read about or talk about, but you want to ensure just a little bit of a baseline of the the risks and rewards. Um, this is a, a bit of a, an intricate one where, you know, there are a lot of unintended consequences. There are a lot of issues when it comes to inflation in Canada that are kind of beyond the the purview of what the the federal government can do or. Um, what the Bank of Canada can do to a certain extent, even when you see things like the domestic issues in, in China that are really uh, putting pressure on, on prices and supply chains being a little bit less reliable than they had been previous to the pandemic. When you look at the war in Ukraine and the um, the resources that are being restrained there, whether it's wheat or whether it's uh, you know Russian energy production, there are a number of factors and it's it's one of those things where it's very easy. We've even seen it in the conservative leadership race to say, you know, this is Justin Trudeau's created inflation. Um, but it's a it's a, a bit of a complex issue if you look at the <laughs> global environment and the pandemic and all of these kind of once in a generation or lifetime type issues. Dave Korzynski, Research Director with the Angus Reid Institute. Uh, we love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. No problem, Scott. Enjoy your day. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We saw a report in the Toronto Star yesterday or the day before that pointed out that according to the Liberals' own internal polling, they aren't going to win this election, and now it's a question of whether or not they can garner enough votes to keep the Conservatives to a minority. But when you hear a report like this, boy, it sounds like the white flag is already waving two weeks before the election, which is odd. I'm Now, I'm quite sure this report was not meant to be leaked. Nonetheless, it is, a, it, it is not exactly exuding confidence by the Liberals. I want to bring in Larry Savage. He's Labor Studies Professor and Chair of the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. He joins us now. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. The idea that maybe now the Liberals are saying, hey, maybe we can just get some people, enough people to vote for us strategically instead of the NDP, and then maybe we can cobble together enough seats to maybe hold the Conservatives into a minority. Is that a good strategy? You know, it. you seem to think that it was accidentally leaked. I probably suspect it was leaked on purpose. And that's because the Liberals understand that they're not going to form the next government. And what they're really trying to do is to finish in second place by winning over some of these NDP votes to kind of reestablish themselves as one of the top two parties, which for them, I guess, would be a big deal because, of course, in the last election, they lost official party status. 
Yeah. And, and you could absolutely be correct. And, and you probably are correct. I mean, you're the expert here, not me. You absolutely are the, could be correct. The only reason I thought maybe it wasn't supposed to come out now is because there's still two weeks left. And if Ford says something stupid or one of his candidates says something stupid, you know, maybe you can still get to the finish line. Maybe this thing comes out a few days before when it's still, you know, enough time to make people decide to vote liberal. But as I say, who, who know one way or the other, who knows if this is the case? I mean, we saw Kathleen Wynne do this, didn't she? At the end of the 2018 campaign in the waning days, she said, hey, remember me over here, vote for me or else it's going to be a Ford majority. And it was and they did. That's right. She threw in the towel and it didn't work very well for her. Uh, and of course, election campaigns are roller coasters, but this particular campaign, I have to say, seems to have been on autopilot since day one, in that the parties have not moved very much in the polls, and uh, with the conservatives in the lead in the mid-30s, and, uh, and the liberals in the NDP very close within the margin of error in second place somewhere in the mid-20s. And so something big would have to happen, I think, in the last week of this campaign in order to shift things very much. And of course, uh, elections only come around once every four years. And so parties are going to use every strategy in, in, uh, in their arsenal in order to win over some of, those, uh, some of those undecideds in the last week. Let me take your um, supposition for a moment here as true, and that is that this was leaked out on purpose at this point. And again, that could very well be the case. That would imply then that the liberals are banking on people's fear, or at least their supporters and some NDP supporters' fear of a Ford majority again. Is fear a good motivator in an election? I think fear does motivate people, but what I think that is going to be the challenge for the liberals is that they use this tactic in every single election. And so at one point, some people might roll their eyes a little bit and say, oh, of course, the liberals are talking about strategic voting again. They do this every election. Uh, and for that reason, that's the reason I think that they leak them themselves because it's self-serving to call it an internal poll which no one else from the outside can validate if it's real or not and feed it to a large newspaper to, to send out to its readers. And, uh, you know, strategic voting has a long history in Ontario politics. And, uh, and, and for myself, you know, I've been studying strategic voting campaigns, specifically union-backed anti-conservative strategic voting campaigns um, for about a decade now. And uh, the bottom line is, the evidence shows that they're not that effective. And in some cases, they're actually counterproductive. Why? Well, because when we, when we approach an election campaign with the idea that we're going to replace our sincere vote with someone that we think is going to block the candidate that we prefer the least, you have to make that decision based on some pretty concrete evidence that relates to your specific riding. So for example, you might consider yourself closely aligned with the NDP personally, but you're told that that party doesn't have a chance. Uh, so you vote strategically for the liberals because you think they're pos best positioned to defeat the conservatives who you really don't like. But let's say you're a new resident to downtown Hamilton and all you've done is re read this Toronto Star article. 
Well, you'd probably walk away thinking, well, gee, I better vote liberal in order to stop the conservatives. What you need to know, though, is that in downtown Hamilton and Hamilton Center, it's an NDP stronghold. It's been NDP for years and years. And the liberals, of course, are running a very distant third there. And so you'd actually not be voting strategically at all. You'd be undermining the effort uh, of trying to defeat the conservatives. And that's part of the problem. You have to uh, anticipate what everyone else is going to do as well if your vote is going to be used strategically. Exactly, but it also has to be done on a riding by riding by riding right, basis. Right. And, and I mean, as you uh, describe this, as you describe this, it really sounds, and I hate to bring it down to something so simple and so stupid, but if anyone ever watches Survivor, the TV show, and you hear people trying to figure out who's voting for who based on what, if you spin your head around too many times, you lose track of what, like, it's just easier to go with the thing that you believe as opposed to trying to anticipate everyone else's move. Well, I think that's it. And, and, to, and to keep talking about Survivor, the candidates and the parties themselves will also purposely spin disinformation in order to try to uh, portray or frame themselves as their strategic choice. And I think there are a lot of liberal candidates in this particular election that are guilty of this. I see it on Twitter where they're, they'll post um, polling projections to demonstrate that they're the ones to beat. But what some of them are doing is they use province-wide polling data as indicative of voting intentions in their specific writing, rather than riding specific polling data that might actually show them in third place. And this kind of behavior, I think, really stokes cynicism amongst voters. And it really sows the seeds of confusion, I think, amongst the electorate when you have New Democrats asserting they're the strategic choice and liberals asserting they're the strategic choice and conservatives, I think, sitting there snickering the whole time, knowing that those two parties are eating themselves alive. I, I, I kind of didn't miss, didn't catch what you said for the last 30 seconds because I was so shocked at your suggestion that politicians may peddle in disinformation. It, it, I, I almost <laughs> fell off my chair. The politicians that tell us we have to have laws now to make sure there is no misinformation or disinformation on our websites, uh, they don't, they couldn't possibly feed us incorrect information on purpose. That would never happen. Yes, why? Well, sorry to break it, <laughs> yet, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's, look, it's, it's a fascinating thing, whether or not, you know, this, this report was released now intentionally or unintentionally and, and where it goes from here, we, we do have to run, but very, very, very quickly, 10 seconds. Does all of this suggest that if the conservatives win, but don't win a majority, that we could see the conservatives uh, the liberals and the NDP deciding to coalesce together and try and govern themselves? I doubt that you'll see any formal coalition between the Liberals and the NDP because there's no love lost between those parties. But I wouldn't rule out some sort of cooperation in order to turf Ford as the premier, because let's face it, even at 35 percent, if he uh, that is not a, a huge uh, a vote of endorsement in his leadership. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in a, in, a, in a week from now. Larry Savage uh, from Brock University. Very much appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A little background. Yesterday, if you were listening to the show, you know that we were talking to Councillor Esther Pauls about the city's plan, the council's vote, 
that was going to see 440, roughly up to 440 city workers fired on June the 1st for not being vaccinated. And the issue here is really, for many people, not about whether or not you agree with the idea of vaccination or not. That's a, that is an issue, but it's a secondary issue. The real issue here is there's a lot of people saying, well, you can go ahead and fire them, but you're not going to win when they fight this in arbitration or fight this in the courts. They are going to win, and then it's going to cost the city a ton of money when you have to pay them severance or bring them back and you've got other people hired. And so maybe we should know what this is going to cost before we go down this road. That is really, for, leave the other one aside. You can argue all day long about whether you support vaccination or not. That's not really the issue. It's can the city win this? Well, city council today took up the cause again. And well, let me bring in Esther Pauls again. She joins us for a second day in a row. This is a this is a first, I think. Uh, Esther, what happened today? Because so, I, I've had my eye kind of on council, but I've been on the air, so I've been seeing voting has happened. What is the upshot of what's happened today? Oh, you won't believe what happened. Well, I got I, I came to council this morning. I came at seven o'clock, and I'm trying to figure out because uh, today basically we're going to vote, and that was it. May. Uh, 31st is the deadline, and that's it. But I talked to the clerk, and I said, how can we get this back up where we could take some more time to make sure we get the cost before we fire them? Now, as you know, we need it. Um, the, the reconsideration had to be the opposing six counselor, and none of them wanted to do it. I talked to some of them. They said, no, we need to fire them, and that's it. So I had no hope. Until this morning, I came in, I thought, what's another way to do it? And this is the way we're going to do it. You, you know what? There was a breach of trust to the taxpayers because we were firing people without knowing the cost. So the clerk said, yes, you can do that. You don't have to have a reconsideration to do that. So bingo. I thought, this is the way we're going to do it. So I put a motion. And the motion was to amend uh, item 3-1 of council's meeting, uh, respect, uh, respecting the amendment of the mandatory COVID-19 vaccination. So I amended it to say, yes, we will fire them. Yes, we will make sure they get still get tested. But first, we have to find the cost. So we postponed it till October 1st now. So Okay, so the people, so the, the staff now who were going to be fired on June the 1st, they now have a, they, it's been put off until October the 1st. And does that mean then that your hope is that staff will be able to give some estimate of what the cost of firing and them would be before that happens? Of course. We're going to find out uh, roughly how much it's going to cost. And also, Scott, the best thing is, you know, COVID, it's changed. It's two and a half years. You know, it'll be on almost uh, at the end if um, by uh, October um, uh, October 1st, we'll know more about COVID. We will know that uh, really, um, you know, it, it, it might be over, and we hope so it is. But I'm just saying, oh, give us more time to consider that. But the we'll, most important thing is about uh, the cost. We will know the cost. 
Will there have been, because I know that there were already arbitration hearings that were started on this with some of the unions. There's 11 unions that have filed grievances on yes. this that represent yes. different workers in the city. Yeah. And I know that one or two of them had begun an arbitration process as early as yesterday. Yes. Does that continue now? So in other words, will we not only know the cost, but will we also have an idea from an arbitrator which way the rulings are going so we could see if you're yes. fighting for a winner or a loser here? Yes, we'll know. We'll, we'll the picture will be a little bit more clearer to see what's going on. We'll have more time to see who's filing grievances, who's suing us, who, uh, all that. So we'll have a clearer picture. Now, uh, I was talking to Laura Fontana. It, it is a high task to within three, what is it, three months now, just over three months to do it. But we will have a rough idea how many more people are going to have grievances against us and how much it's going to cost. And basically, that was it. That was the issue. Right. We so it buys not- some. It buys time for sure. And Laura Fontana, by the way, is the head of human resources, so she's the one who's in charge of coming up with this uh, this estimate. So the idea, then, I suppose, is um, depending on what we find out in the next two or three months here, uh, this this could end up meaning that nothing changes. Or it could, if we find out that the cost of this is going to be enormous, this could theoretically cause some people to change their mind and decide that they're not going to go ahead with this. Of course. Can you imagine if uh, the city has to fork out maybe $30 million, 50? I don't know what the figure is, but I heard the lowest cost would be $33 million. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure of that. But I'm just saying, sure, it will change some mind. And we'll also know more about COVID. We'll know more. Uh, you know, who's spreading it. I want to tell you that 94% have vaccinated. So the the point to keep our staff safe, that's in, common sense says how are we keeping them safe? 94% are vaccinated. They're spreading it just as much. Actually, the unvaccinated, I got a couple of emails, the unvaccinated are still working. There was a gentleman, 36 years, working for HSR. Guess what? Not one day he missed through the COVID. And he wasn't vaccinated, and he didn't get sick. So to keep that theory doesn't work anymore. You know, we've proven that even if you're vaccinated, you need to wear a mask. You need to social distance. So, uh, and that to me is very important. But most of all, uh, I know that uh, my main intention was I don't want to see people on the street. I've had Mm. hundreds of emails saying, how will I pay my mortgage? You know the cost of mortgages now. You know the cost of food, the cost of gas. You know, we are a city of service. We service people. We're inclusive. We want to help people. And to me, the cost is important, but more important, you know what it is? Human beings. We need to accommodate. That is Esther Pauls. Uh, Listen, I, I know you're in a meeting right now. You just stepped out, so I will let you get back into your meeting. But thanks for the update. I appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. Bye bye. So, uh, yeah, something to keep in mind as well, which is uh, really, so we, we don't know the cost yet. There's a lot of people who are very concerned. A lot of experts said it is going to be very, very costly if this goes ahead. We don't know that for sure, but there's a lot of suspicion. And there's a lot of suspicion that the city would not win this fight. That's where the concern really comes from. But Keep one other thing in mind about the new date, that now they will be fired on October the 1st rather than June 1st. However, if this document comes back that shows how much it's going to cost, and if it looks like it's a huge amount of money potentially, 
How many counselors do you think are going to continue to push ahead with that, knowing there's an election 22 days away from making a choice to push ahead with a firing that could cost a ton of money that the city might not have a good chance to win, knowing that voters are going to the polls less than a month later? It, it is going to put... It is going to look, we're either going to find out that it's not going to cost that much and the city has a great case and it's fine to push ahead and everything is good, or it's going to put some counselors in a really tough spot to whether do you stick with your beliefs and risk having a really angry electorate that you're now potentially going to risk millions of dollars. It is uh, wow. But as of right now, if you are a city worker, you have a stay of execution as it were for uh, at least a few months until October the 1st. I don't want to waste any time right now because I want to bring on someone right away this hour, uh, a guy that you will know his name, especially if you're a sports fan around here, although he hasn't been doing a lot of sports, at least not in the public forum lately. He's into a whole new line of work, but I suspect that he still wears those rubber gloves that go right up to his elbow like he used to. Dave Stahl, a former receiver with the Hamilton Ticats, now into all kinds of different things. Dave, how are you? Good, Scott. What's going on, man? Long time. It has been a long time. Are you still? Are you wearing those gloves even as we speak? Uh, no, I don't have to put those things on anymore, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a different. I got a different role now, but it's uh, you know just moving on and uh, one day at a time here. But it's all it, things are well. The 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 new role, uh, the guy, the Stala who is behind Stala Building Solutions. You are now into the construction world and the renovation world and all that kind of stuff. This is uh, is this something that you were into always? That you were always a handy guy and into things, or did you figure this out as you were playing or after you were playing? When did this happen? Uh, I, well, I would say probably pretty much when I started playing, came back to Hamilton. Here we started buying uh, some some properties here over the last couple of years and. Uh, that started probably then. I was actually playing at the same time I was renovating properties, and uh, <clears throat> just just realizing what the need was for to renovate a property. I knew there was a need for a store, um, a material store downtown Hamilton, which Hamilton's kind of missing that. So, well, you know, we created a store about two years ago, uh, Stella Building Solutions. We supply uh, we supply interior materials for stores, uh, sorry for clients, and. Uh, we, we we just came up with a program called uh, Dollar for Doors, uh, just trying to get involved in the community and uh, make some donations for you know some organizations throughout the city because uh, our store is right downtown where we where I grew up. Tell us about this Dollars for Doors. Then this this is a program to help local charities. Uh, how does it work? So basically, the way we do it, we we sell anytime we sell a door, we probably sell about two hundred fifty to three hundred doors a month. Um, any anytime we sell a door, we donate a dollar to uh, to a charity, and then we ask the client to match it. And then once we get that donation for quarterly, we ask a I guess a, a local we call it a hero, which is this month is um, Mission Thirty Five Mortgages. Brian Hogman is going to match the donation. So if we if we donate two thousand dollars or twenty five hundred bucks, they'll they'll match that donation. So we're we're trying to push for you know for for a good amount the first quarter here. Canusa Games. Um, as a youngster, I was able to participate in that. So we're going to give the donation to Canusa uh, Games. They're, they're going to help the kids, you know, uh, build 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 the the athletes like we did when we were younger. Um, some of our staff uh, from our organization were part of the Canusa Games, so it's it's a good way to give back to those kids. 
It sounds like, I mean, as you say, you were doing this even while you were playing. I mean, have you always been a handy guy? Is this, or is this something that you learned how to do? Was it always, did your dad or your uncle or your brother, I mean, did anyone teach you to do this or just something you could do? No, just like football, you just got to figure it out, right? It's a craft. So uh, once we started, uh, you know, uh, buying properties here, you know, I used to be the hands-on guy doing everything. And then over time we realized that, you know, maybe it's better to let the pros do it, uh, you know. So we have a team in-house that does renovations, but um, our, our focus is on the store where basically we try to help contractors, small builders, or renovators, you know, make, make it a, we're a one-stop shop. So we supply trim, doors, flooring, uh, hardware, railings, stair caps, um, basically try to make it easier for them. Um, th- again, there's no, there's no stores downtown Hamilton that kind of provide the service. So we're kind of in a different area, different niche. So um, I, it's been working and we've been growing. We've got about eight employees now. Um, we've moved into a 20,000 square foot warehouse downtown on uh, right by Cathedral. So we're right back in the hood where I grew up. So it, it kind of makes mm. the story that much better. That's right. Cathedral grad for sure. Um, what, do people remember, I mean, it's been how many years since you've not been playing now? Five or six? Uh, seven. Seven. <laughs> I, yeah. It, yeah. Time just, time just flies when people come in and I'm assuming you're in the store, you're working at times. Do people come in and go, Oh, that's Stella. I didn't realize Stella meant Stella. Does that ever happen that people go, I didn't know that was you. Yeah. That's, I still get that all the time. They don't realize that, you know, where we are, but I mean, sometimes uh, I got, I had a, a client when I was doing a delivery about last year, gave me a baseball bat, a tie cats, cause he knew I was coming to do a delivery. So yeah, we still get that. Um, again, uh, I've moved on, so I'm 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 a I'm a we we we're a retail store now, and you know the football is the past, but it, it is a big part of what I did here in Hamilton. So just trying to keep uh, keep my name going here in Hamilton. Hey, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt if people know the name and they put two and two together. I, I must ask you though, we only have a second left here. Uh, the guys that what you used to do, the guys who are in training camp now. Did you like training camp, or are you so thrilled you don't have to go through training camp and two days that it's like no, this is way better. Uh, well, this is way better. Well, it's not way better. It's way easier. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know what, though? The training camp, I found the best season that I had is when I got through the training camps. Uh, if you get hurt in training camp, don't do the training camps. You don't get in that shape. So although you hate it, it does put you in, in game-ready uh, shape. So I think uh, as much as training camp is dreading and, and you know, uh, a lot of on our bodies, but it's, it's always the best for the players. So when you get through camp, you usually have a better better season. Dave, if somebody wants to either buy a door or maybe, you know what, there might be someone out there who just wants to make a donation straight up without even buying a door. How do they do that? How do they get in touch with you? Well, we have our website, StellaBuildingSolutions.ca. They can just go on the webpage there um, or contact us and and, and there's a donation uh, button there. Or just give us a call. The number is 905-921-0988. But if if you just get in contact with us and, uh, you know, we can definitely help out and we're just trying to grow, you know, grow, grow downtown here and, and help the community that helped us. That is Dave Stella, former Ticat receiver, now a man who will help you with your building needs. I felt like I'm doing a commercial, but I'm not. But anyway, Dave Stella, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Awesome, Scott. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.